I stated last week there is something within church history that was developed at the second century. They developed some creeds. Those creeds gave truth and statements and in paragraphs. And one of the ones that is still loved today is the Apostles' Creed. Some churches, as I mentioned, and maybe some of you recited that every Sunday growing up, it goes this way, at least part of it, that I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and a little bit more. But I'm always stunned by that. In fact, in all of the creed, there's really only two Bible characters outside of the Trinity that are obviously mentioned, and that being Mary, that Jesus Christ was born under the Virgin Mary, born of the Virgin Mary, But then the second one is Pilate, and the creed says, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And so why, I would ask you, amid all the evil surrounding his death, why is Pilate singled out? I mean, in my mind, I begin to think, why not Herod? Why not even Caiaphas? Why not Annas? And for that matter, why not was betrayed by Judas? You're going to find that out this morning. Because there's much said about this character, Pontius Pilate. Take your Bible and open to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. And we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 all the way down through 11 as it prepares us for communion. We come to a historic account. We come to an account with real people, real events. And I say that because the Bible is not some mystical book. It is actually a historical book. And the truth of it, the scripture, is drawn from actual history. And in the passage here in John 19, Jesus will be tried And he will be delivered over to be crucified by Pilate. Pilate, as you recall, was the Roman governor of the area of Judea. He ruled that area as the governor from 26 to 36 AD. And he obviously played a significant part in the civil trial of Christ. And thus the apostles creed suffered under Pontius Pilate. I think it's interesting, and maybe you remember this, that Paul said to his young son Timothy in the faith, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, he said this to Timothy, and maybe almost a little bit like the elder examination today, his opening line in 613 was, I charge you in the presence of God. He reminded him that all of his ministry was before God, 
And it says in 6.13, who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, or excuse me, of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, Paul said, made the good confession. So Paul recognized, sought here, stated here, that he made to Jesus Christ the good confession before Pontius Pilate. He made, Paul said, the good confession because that confession, beloved, would cost his life. He stated in that confession that he was king and he was ever so bold but genuine with Pilate. Look at the text with me. Let me read it. Uh, for you. You follow along reading 19, 1 through 11. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Then the Jews answered, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he had made him, has made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. May God bless his scripture. Now, let me remind you just to kind of set the table. At least it, I want you to see where I've been these last weeks in my study. I certainly don't want you to get confused here. There were two distinct trials of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of those trials was a Jewish trial. The other one of those trials was what we can call a Roman trial, a Gentile trial, or a civil trial. I usually just call it the Roman trial. So you have a Jewish trial, and then you have a Roman trial. In each of those respective trials, there were three phases to each of them. So first, there's three phases, if you will, to the Jewish trial. And we've already looked at that. Phase one of the Jewish trial was before Annas. And that was in John 18, 12 through 27. What's in interesting to John's gospel, each of the writers have their own purpose. After phase one of the Jewish trial, it obviously moves into phase two and phase three of the Jewish trial. John doesn't include that. 
Phase two and phase three of the Jewish trial took place under Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and those are in other gospels. But then, secondly, there is a Roman trial or a Gentile trial, and it has three phases to it. And John picks up that story of phase one of the Roman trial when Jesus, in John 18, 28, is before Pilate. And we looked at that, and it was a wonderful text, and it was really a text of a clash of personalities and between Jesus and the soldiers and Pilate himself. There's scenes really of a dramatic play, but so greater than any earthly play because of our Savior who has suffered for us. And we'll have an opportunity to remember him at communion even this morning. And so what I want to do is look at the scenes that reveal both the innocence of Christ as well as the sovereignty of God, which is at work in the greatest evil ever committed in any human court. Christ is going to suffer under Pontius Pilate. But as he suffers, he is seen preeminently as the redeeming savior for sinners as he moves to the cross. So these scenes, if you will, reveal both his innocence and his sovereignty. You might ask, even as we walk through this in just a moment, when he would be delivered to be crucified, why did he have to suffer? I mean, that is a question that I ask. I mean, why could he have not just been killed? Why did he have to suffer so much for us? Well, certainly he was a suffering savior. But I think as I ask that question, your minds go to all the places, even 700 years previous to that, in Isaiah 53, where he would be called the suffering servant. And so it was prophesied that he would suffer. It is prophesied that he would die. In fact, hold your hand there in John 19. Go over to Mark's gospel just for a moment. I want to show you this as we lead in to Pilate. Because Jesus, throughout his ministry, look over at Mark chapter 18, throughout his three-year earthly ministry, at least on the backside a year and a half into his ministry with a year and a half left, he began to talk to his disciples Maybe a year and a half to two years. Look at Mark chapter 8 in verse 31. This is far before the, the Passion Week, 831. He began to teach them, the disciples, that the Son of Man, here it is in 831, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priest and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And that's when, remember this, when he said this plainly in verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He began to tell him, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, and then I'll rise again. Look over at the next chapter, at Mark chapter 9, in verse 31, as they're on their way through Galilee, in 931, he was 
teaching his disciples, saying to them that the Son of Man is going to be, that word there, delivered, betrayed is the idea, into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise again. In verse 32, they didn't understand the saying. They were afraid to ask him. Verse 33, they came into Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He keeps telling them he's going to suffer and be mocked and killed and rise, but they're not understanding Look just one chapter later in Mark chapter 10, and in verse 33, he foretells his death a third time, saying in 1033, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be, that that word, it's, it's delivered over, it's paradidomai, which means to be betrayed. He will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and Deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will, look at 34, mock him. He's prophesying exactly what's going to happen. And spit on him, and underline this in 1034, and flog him and kill him. And then after three days, he will rise. So look back now at John chapter 19. All of this is transpiring because number one, he prophesied it. And number two, I would say in that, that God is sovereign. So these scenes, beloved, as I've said, is revealing both his innocence and his sovereignty to reveal our redemption in his death. Now we looked at three scenes last week. We looked at the accusation in 1829. Uh, Pilate wanted to know, what charge do they bring against you? What are they accusing you of? was the accusation that led, secondly, to the interrogation. Do you really and are you a king of the Jews? And that, thirdly, led to revelation in verse 38 of chapter 18, excuse me, when Pilate said to him, what is truth? And here was the revelation after they said this. He went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. And so these scenes, almost like a dramatic play, are being revealed. There's an accusation against him. Even though earlier that morning, before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, they pronounced the death sentence on him, okay? But Pilate wants to know, what's the accusation? Then he interrogates him. Are you really a king? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And then the revelation by Herod, excuse me, Pilate himself is there's no guilt in him. In fact, you'll remember as you look at the end of chapter 18, uh, there they turn over uh, Barabbas, if you will. They release him and they move towards the execution of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I bring you now to this fourth scene this morning. It's affliction. It's affliction. Look at the text. Follow along with me. Then Pilate took Jesus, and it says in the text, and flogged him. Now, on on the one hand, you're, you're, you're thinking, Pilate, what are you 
doing? He, he just said in 1838 that I find no guilt in him. But you move to chapter 19, okay? Chapter 19, and they flog him. And the only answer I could have is Jesus said in Mark 10, 34, that he would be flogged. And you say, what, what does that mean there in 19.1 that Jesus was flogged? Well, as you begin to look at the history of Roman torture, if you will, they had three different types of whipping. There was one that I just call a whipping, certainly painful. It was called the fustigatio in Latin. Painful, but less severe of a crime. It was meant to send a message to those who received that first type of whipping. Then there was a second one that was more severe, and it was definitely given to inflict pain, punishment for more severe crimes. Then there was a third type called the verberatio, another term for Latin. And that third one is the one we're talking about here. In fact, that was a flogging where really it was called a final scourging. The sentence would already have been pronounced. And so they called it a pre-death death. And I think that's obviously the case here. The Gospels record both the second and the third type of flogging. And I believe you have the third here because back in the other Gospels, according to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, they already pronounced that sentence of death on him. What does it mean to be flogged? Well, it was a whip. It was a whip. If you can just picture this, and I, I don't mean to be so graphic here um, to highlight something, but I just want you to know there are no words that I could deliver to you that would grasp the weight of this, what the Savior did for you. I really believe that in my heart. So he had him flogged. It was a whip. It had a short wooden handle, if you will, and on the end of that whip itself were attached these leather thongs, if you will. Each thong was embedded with sharp pieces of metal, sharp pieces of bone. And the man who was scourged would be tied to a post by his wrist held high over his head. His, it, they tied him high enough so that his feet would dangle. And the tying to the post of his wrist held high would cause his body to be taut. And in this flogging, muscles were lacerated. Veins and arteries were torn open. And it was not uncommon in history, as they record it, for kidneys and spleen and other organs just to become exposed. In fact, in history, it records that many died from this flogging. 
It was so severe. In fact, the Jews limited the strikes to a person to 39. They go to 39, but not 40. But I want you to know, beloved, this is not the Jewish trial. This is the Roman trial. And the Romans had no limit to the cracks across the back. A doctor said of the flogging that the heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders and his back and his legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. As the blows continue, the cut Deep, that they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skins, then spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue." This is his suffering for you. This is what he did to purchase your redemption. In fact, don't know if it happened here, but Jerome, the church father, tells us it took six men to inflict this because it was so wearying that there had to be shifts in those who wielded the blows. Beloved, we just sometimes come into communion And I just want you to know the Lord suffered enormous pain, ripping and shredding of his flesh, shame, humiliation, pain, mockery. Beloved, it's an understatement to say that he was beaten bloody. Isaiah 52, 14 says that his appearance was so disfigured that it was beyond human recognition. So Pilate had him flogged. He said, that's senseless. Oh, perverse. Perverse. But it was prophesied by the Lord Jesus Christ that he would be flogged. And if this just weren't enough, look at the text in verse 2 and 3. The soldiers then twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Beloved, we see that before, that the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns. Not exactly sure what you're thinking, that you're thinking of these little tiny thorns. That's not the case here. These are thorns that come from a tree called a date palm. And they're 12 inches long. And so they weave this crown of thorn and of 12 inches long were these thorns that come out of that palm. And obviously they're shaming him. They're humiliating him. Here's a crown for the king. And then of course the text says they put a purple robe on him. And I think you know that this is the color of, that's worn by kings. It's worn by royalty, and they shout. Can you hear that? King of the Jews. Kind of like they would shout to Caesar, but of course, to the soldiers, this is sport. They're mocking, humiliating him. 
One historian said he's bloody from head to feet. His face is unrecognizable. He's distorted by the bruises and swollenness of spittle mixed with blood and dirt of the day. A scene of ugliness in which the prophet Isaiah said, there's no beauty in him that we should desire him. You're grasping this and you're saying, for what? There's no charge against him. We, we might even ask for what? For healing a woman who suffered for 12 years of a blood condition? For restoring the man's withered hand on the Sabbath? For raising Lazarus from the dead? This is the very one who spoke and the world came into being and he subjects himself to this. The very one that every knee will bow in the future, is struck by the hands of soldiers, the hands that he created. In fact, here it's struck by the hand, but Mark says they struck him with their fist. I mean, this is just brutality. The language shows the soldiers beating him again and again on his head with the scepter, with the reed. And Mark even tells us that they took turns spitting into his face, into, beloved, the very face of Almighty God. You say, well, why would Pilate do this? Well, look, in verse 4, I think there's a clue there. He went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. I mean, if there's no charge, Pilate, then why don't you just do justice and release this man who is sinless? And beloved, I think it's possible here that Pilate brings Jesus out. He brings him out beaten. He brings him out bloodied. He brings him out with a crown of thorns. He brings him out dressed in shame, in mocking gesture, hoping, I think, I don't know what you think, but I think he wanted them to release Jesus. I think he had him flogged, if you will, to say, isn't this enough? Or maybe even to say to the Jewish leadership, do you think that this is a king? Is this really a revolutionary? Look at him. Beloved, but there's irony all over the place. Because this is the king, is it not? This is God in the flesh. This is one who can call on 12 legions of angels. Say, so why is that, pastor? Why is that? I think this is the love of God for you. This was God's plan that he would suffer and die and be raised on the third day. So look at the text in verse 5 again. So Jesus came out. In other words, he was inside. Now he comes out. He came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Amazing statement. Pilate said to them, behold the man. You'd think it's... This enough, just let him go, I think Pilate is saying. In other words, he brings him back out and you can imagine the picture there. And I think for Pilate, 
he's saying he's just a man. They're mocking him. And beloved, can I just say this? What utter self-control by the Lord Jesus Christ. Could call on 12 legions of angels. And he doesn't. And yet the irony here is he is a man. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word, what, was God. And in John 1.14, the word became, what, flesh. So on the one hand, mocking him as a king, but he is the king. And now on the other hand, mocking him as just a man, and yet he is a man because 1 Timothy 2.5 said that there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who will offer himself for you. I think, he, I think Pilate's thinking the Jewish leadership is going to relent. Isn't that enough? But... Look at verse 6, no. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Amazing statement. Even after seeing the Lord Jesus Christ flogged, there's no compassion. There's no sense of truth in them. In fact, in Mark 15, look at it later, Pilate said, what do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And their response was immediate. Crucify him. Crucify him. But Pilate said to them in Mark 15, what evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, crucify him. Crucify him. I think, beloved, Pilate was surprised. I don't know if it's The word shocked is too much. But one of the truths that emerges here is that the leadership in the crowd wanted blood. They didn't want justice. And so they cry out, can you believe it? Free the murderer and kill the Messiah. I mean, that would be like free Osama bin Laden and kill the Messiah. Free the one who was guilty of insurrection, Barabbas, the one who was guilty of murder, and free him and kill the Messiah. You know, and I know, you forget, I forget, this is Good Friday that we're talking about, you know that. But I do remind you this, just five days earlier, he came riding on a donkey to shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now just five days later, the leadership is is crying out, crucify him. So what happens next? Look at verse 7. I find no guilt in him, he says in 19.6. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself out or made himself the son of God. Now, this is interesting here. Because the first trial was the Jewish religious one. The second one is the Roman trial. And in the Jewish trial, they're accusing him of blasphemy, that he makes himself out to be God. 
But in the Roman trial, they're trying to make him out to be the king because they could only execute him, could the Romans, if he was seen working against Caesar. But here it's fascinating. They said, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself to be the son of God. Say, why did they do that? Because the Jewish plan wasn't working. I find no guilt in him, Pilate said. Do you have a charge against him? Do you have any evidence against him? What has he done? What are you accusing him of? And then even when he said, I'm a king, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He wasn't a threat to Caesar. But they have a law. You say, well, what law is that stated in 197? Well, it's probably, most likely, Leviticus 24:16, And there it says that anyone who blasphemes, the name of the Lord must be put to death. And now the charge is he's made himself the son of God. And so they're moving forward in this Roman trial to kill him for blasphemy. He claimed to be God's son, which was another way to say that he's deity. And the irony is, beloved, not only was he truly a king, not only was he truly a man, but here, thirdly, he truly is the son of God. And so that was the charge. You say, well, what happened next in the text? Look at it in verse 8. When Pilate, very fascinating, heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Heard what statement? That he claimed, and really was, the son of God. He became afraid. The Greek word is phobos. And maybe you're just thinking he's afraid. Yeah, the word just means he's terrified. When he heard that, verse 8 says, he was even more afraid. He's afraid, but now he's even more afraid. You say, well, Scott, why? Well, could it be his guilt? Possibly. I mean, just think he's interrogating God in the flesh. And he sees no guilt in him. And so now when he heard that they want to bring charge against him to crucify him because of his blasphemous claim, he's guilty. Could be. Could be, secondly, that he's just cruel and he just had Jesus flogged, just had his back filleted, if you will. And now he hears that's the charge. He could be that he's just frightened Maybe it's possible that he's a sinner, Pilate, and he's standing in the face of truth. And as he stares truth in the face, and he's had hundreds of criminals come before him, all justifying their innocence, and now you get to Christ, and in the other accounts, he doesn't even open his mouth. Could be that. It could be that once that They heard or said that he was the son of God. Maybe Pilate at that point, and this would certainly be partially true, that he feared a riot. But I think, beloved, in his heart of hearts, he said, is he God? Is he really deity? And I think this is what was in his warped mind. Has he come to haunt me? Has he come to confront me? Many of these leaders were very superstitious. 
So his fear is overwhelming. So look what happens in the text in verse 9. It says that he entered, he goes back in to the headquarters again. And he said to Jesus, where are you from? Where are you from? And I don't think he's asking him, where were you born? Who are you? Are you divine? Where did you come from? Which John has been making his point over and over in the gospel that he comes from above. So what did he do with that question? Where are you from? Look at 9b. Jesus gave him no answer. No answer. So why didn't he answer him? Why didn't he preach to him the gospel? The gospel's in front of him. Well, Isaiah 53, 7. He was afflicted. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he opened not his, what? Mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like sheep that is, that is before its shears is silent. He fulfilled scripture. These scenes are revealing his innocence and revealing the sovereignty of God, orchestrating every one of these details for your redemption. And he didn't answer. You say, well, what happened? He got ticked. He's mad. Look at the text in verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you, emphatic, you will not speak to me? He couldn't believe it. Do you know that I have the authority to release you? And I have the authority to crucify you? Pilate basically says to him, to the Lord Jesus, do you know who I am? And humanly speaking, he did have that authority. But it's much more than, it's much more is the truth of Scripture than what he thinks. Because I think Jesus is going to turn the table on him. I think Jesus would say, do you know who I am? Do you know actually who you're talking to? It might be even that some of you this morning think that, maybe, I don't know, you think that Jesus doesn't know who you are. Listen, he knows everything about you. I might ask, who do you think you are? If you've not bowed in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've made him out to only be a man, but do not share his divinity, then you've lost sight of the gospel of John. So look what Jesus answered and said to him. Look at verse 11. He said, you would have, I love this response, no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. In other words, Jesus to Pilate, God has ordained you for such a time as this. Oh, listen, there's scenes here. Accusation, interrogation, revelation. I find no guilt in him to affliction, but you understand all of it proved his innocence and all of it proved his sovereignty. He tells Pilate that 
It's been given to you from above. Does it not remind you of Genesis 50 in the scene with Joseph and his brothers that what you meant for evil, God meant for what? For good, right? That's the thought here. Now, something, and this is the whole thought here of the Apostles' Creed. Born of the Virgin Mary, but suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why here? Well, it was prophesied that he gave him that authority. Look at the end of verse 11, though. Therefore, Jesus says, the end of 11. Fascinating statement. He who delivered me over to you, it says there, has the greater sin. Who's that? What's he talking about? Well, you could see it in verse 11. He who delivered me over to you, Pilate, has the greater sin. It could be constructed that that would be Herod, that he was sent in the second phase of the Roman trial to Herod in Luke 23, but I don't think he's really getting at Herod here. The greater sin was Caiaphas. The greater sin was the high priest. The greater sin was the Sanhedrin. The greater sin was that body, that collection of people in the Jewish leadership that put a mock trial on illegally early in the morning, 71 members of this council who pronounced a death sentence on him. You say, well, Scott, why do you think that's the greater sin? Well, just look back, or maybe it's on the same page, when he said in chapter 18, in verse 35, he said, Pilate answered him, am I a Jew? Now watch the language, 1835, your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me, what have you done? You say, it was them, it was the leadership, the Jewish leadership killed their own Messiah. So the one who delivered you over to me has greater sin. But you might ask, does Pilate have guilt? Absolutely, yes. It just says that there's greater sin. You say, do the, road, do the soldiers have guilt? And I would say, yes, absolutely. But the greater guilt is the leaders of Israel. And beloved, I just make this point to you. Not all crimes are the same. Biblically, theologically, I think sometimes we say all sin is sin. And yes, that would be true. All sin is sin. But Not all crimes are the same. You say, well, what do you mean? The greater the knowledge, the greater the responsibility. The greater the knowledge, the greater the culpability. In other words, to whom much is given, much is what? Required. In fact, he said to the leadership here, they have the greater sin. There's sin, certainly in Pilate. Sin certainly in the soldiers who made sport of him. We could also put ourselves in there that our sin put him on the cross, but at least at this point, not all crimes are the same. So here's four scenes, accusation, interrogation, revelation, and affliction. Listen, as we go into communion here, 
John Wall, who was a, a Puritan, wrote centuries ago. Listen to what he said of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, the one who possessed a crown of glory was given a crown of thorns. The one who possessed a sovereign scepter of absolute power and authority was given a reed and hit in the face with it. The one whose robe is the covering of perfect righteousness was given a faded soldier's tunic in mockery. The one who has the right to call everyone to fall down and kneel before him and one day every knee will bow was treated with contempt by the soldiers who mockingly bowed down, knelt before him and punched him in the face. The king of kings, the one who lifts up and puts down all rulers who will vanquish all kings when he establishes his earthly kingdom and reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. That one suffered rejection by the rulers and people alike, humiliation and even death, end of quote. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ is our Passover lamb and he's been sacrificed. 